let's dig in. Pergamum is where we spent our time last week, and the thing that separates Pergamum is um, it has a number of different altars, pagan altars. The one that's most prominent is the, uh, the altar to Asclepius. And uh, last week we talked a little bit about Asclepius. You, you may, you know, hear that word and be like, well, Asclepius, well, Cyclopius, whatever that is. But you actually know this one, all right? All of you know this one because you've been to the doctor. And when you go to the doctor and you look up on the wall, you see that pole with Asclepius, the serpent on it, okay? And it's interesting to me how when you go back into uh, history and you look at the origins of stuff, that the origins of that pole with a snake around it actually have their history in paganism. Asclepius was known as the, the god of healing. It's going to bring you healing, right? So uh, a, a Greek god. Imagine going into a city where you've got a, a prominent uh, temple to this god. And, uh, and Pergamon was known for that. In fact, it had a big school of medicine. If you wanted to become a doctor in that time, uh, Pergamon would, would probably be where you would end up, uh, studying medicine, thinking about healing. I always ask myself the question, how in the world does Satan do, that, do this? He does a great job of this because he's a master of disguise. He always making himself look like something good. I'm not bad guy. I'm the good guy. I'm going to just bring you health and healing, right? Last week we talked about um, that playing out in our culture today with Wiccan, witches, right? And you meet a modern day witch, and, and the first thing that goes off in your mind is, you know, where's, where's your broom? I want to borrow your broom. I want to try that thing out, right? I mean, I've always wanted to fly one of those things. They don't have a broom. They don't have like warts on their noses. They don't have any of that stuff. In fact, talk to a modern day witch and what will they tell you? We're the good guys, right? We're about healing. Uh, we use herbs and prayers and we, we speak to, to, you know, to God and we're going to bring you help, all right? Church of Satan. I remember the uh, first time I heard of the Church of Satan, I'm like, what Church of Satan? What in the world is Church of Satan? I said, there's such a thing as a satanic Bible. Do you know that the, in the Church of Satan, they don't believe in Satan? Literally, they don't. If you ever attended a, a, a Church of Satan, you say, well, who is Satan? They go, well, that's just a figure. It's just a figure of speech. Well, what is Satan? Well, it's, Satan is translated as those natural principles by which you can find health and healing and attain those things that you desire in life. And so they have rituals, they have all kinds of things that they do to promote this idea that, that we're not the bad guys, we're actually the good guys. And I, every time I look at that snake on the pole, I'm thinking, how in the world does Satan do this? He's a master of disguise. So you have this church that's in Pergamum. And the, the key thing, keep, keep your eye on this, don't lose it. The key thing about these letters is, the, the intention of them is to say, God takes churches and he puts them in particular places to fight particular battles, right? Never lose that. If I'm in Pergamum and somebody says, what, what should we do as a church? I'd be like, duh. We got this huge temple to Asclepius, right? Satan is posing as I'm the good guy. He's not. We, we really have to get out and help people understand that Satan is not just a figure. He's definitely not just a snake, He's a fallen angel. He means to separate you from Jesus Christ. And there, there is no healing in him. There's only hope 
in the name of Jesus Christ. So this church is doing that, and it gets commended for that. In fact, um, outside of Stephen, who gets martyred, right, in the book of Acts, um, we really don't have a lot of names, specific names of martyrs, but in this case, we, we actually have a named martyr. Uh, in verse number 13, Antipas is, is named as one of many people who lose their lives attesting to Jesus Christ in the midst of this pagan culture, right? So, so what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to this church is, stand up for the truth. It may, you're not going to be popular for it. In fact, people are going to hate you for it. But stand up for it because only the truth can set people free, right? I don't think things have changed a lot, to be quite honest with you. In, in our pagan culture today, Standing up for the truth is extremely hard. It is not easy. You're going to end up saying things that people look at you and they think you're just some old-fashioned, out-of-it person that doesn't even know what you're talking about. Okay, I need you to hear this. This is the only way you can find health and healing and be set free. And so he is commending the church for that. But, verse number 14, the pattern of these letters, I also have some things against you. We looked at this last week, and it's, it's, to me it's pretty significant. He says, in verse 14, he says, I've got, I've got this, about, this against you. Some of you are holding on to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. What makes Revelation hard for us Westerners is... We're kind of a New Testament church. We don't know our Old Testament. The people that are receiving these letters know the Old Testament well. Why? It's their heritage. So the minute Jesus says to them, I've got this against you, that some of you are holding on to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak. They're there. They know what that is. We have to stop and actually go back into the Old Testament and say, well, well, what? who is Balaam? And what was Balak? Okay. Last week we looked at this. Remember that, that Balak is a king. He's the king of Moab. And he gets his binoculars out one day. And he sees something that's not very good to see. Two million people marching towards his town. What do they got in their hands? A box. Right? Now normally... If you're the king of Moab, you would look out at your now you're like, hey, here comes two million people that got a box. Isn't that hilarious? Let's wipe them all out. The problem is, Balak has been reading the newspaper. And on page number one, it says, this group of people have this box. So they wiped out this town. And then they came to this next town. They had this box. They wiped it out. And they came to this next town and they wiped it out. And they don't have any weapons. They have no military training. They, have, they, don't, they don't have horses and chariots and spears. They don't have any of that. They just got this box. But I'm telling you, when they get to your town, they're going to wipe you out. Right? And so he's like, you know, this is a bad deal. They're coming our way. We got to do something about it. So he, he gets on the internet. He looks up, you know, 1-800-make-a-curse. Um, uh, and Balak's name, you know, pops up. He says, get hold of Balaam right now, man. He sends him an email. He calls him. He says, get over here fast. We've got to, we got to get a curse on these people. Why? Because he realizes, this is interesting to me, that th this evil guy realizes that what he's up against is not a flesh and blood, it's spiritual. 
Isn't that interesting? That evil sometimes recognizes that before the people of God do? He does. He gets it. He's like, you know what? We cannot stop the people with the box. They're going to wipe us out. We need help, and it's not going to come. We don't, don't call the chariot people. Don't call the missile people or the, the machine gun people. Call the curse people. Because we need some spiritual stuff here. Some kind of hocus pocus to get these people to stop. So Balaam comes. Who is Balaam? Well, in the Old Testament, he's kind of this strange character. We don't know a great deal about his origins. We don't know a whole lot about him, but we know this. That when you read his story, on one hand, he actually appears to be a follower of Yahweh, of God. He has that appearance. He would say that of himself. Do you, do you follow God? Yes, I follow God. Okay. So what's this deal with the curses? How, how are you doing the curses? We, that, that's, a, that's critical. Here's a guy who can on one hand say, yep, I'm of God. But it's okay to use this curse, this definition. I can, it's okay for me to call upon the spiritual world to do good things. Ooh, it almost sounds like a Wiccan person. It almost sounds like a, a, it doesn't, he could fit into our culture today. It's okay for me to call upon the divine as long as I'm doing something good. But yes, I'm a follower of God. Who is he? He's a split guy. He's a guy who says, yes, I can be this, but I can also do this. Hmm. That sounds like trouble to me. Now, what does he end up doing? Does he end up putting, does he end up putting a curse upon Israel? No, he cannot put a curse upon Israel. Why? Because God, Yahweh, tells him he can't do it. So instead, what he does, he says, all right, I can't get the curse thing done. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you, Israel, or, or excuse me, you, Moab, how to take Israel down. Here's the key. Women. That'll do it. Your greatest weapon is women. Get your most beautiful women. Have them infiltrate the Israelite camp and invite them into your camp. Have your women bring them in. Who are the men? The men are the men who are the, the men are the leaders of the tribes, right? They're the men who are called to uphold the covenant. Notice that Satan always attacks the man first. Always attacks the man first. Why? Because of the position God put him in. You are to maintain the covenant. So Satan attacks the man. Get the women Get them to infiltrate the camp. Invite them to come into your camp. And when they come into your camp, invite them to practice worship. Well, what did Moabite worship look like? Well, it was Baal worship. Baal is a old <coughs> god, right, who takes on multiple manifestations depending upon the region that you're in. Okay. But the most prominent manifestation of Baal, what is always true is, he is looked upon as the god of fertility. And so you'd have two things happen. You would have massive food events, orgies, where you would take food that was sacrificed to idols, right? You had, you, typically you would have Baal uh, idol, that would be the male, Asherah would be the female. And so you're, you're sacrificing this food to them. You're saying, would you, would you cause this food to, to, to in, in essence, 
cause us to be a fertile nation. It's about economy, right? We, we want to be rich. We want to be fertile. So they would sacrifice food, then they would eat it. And they would believe that <clears throat> when you ate the food, sacrificed to the idol, that it was actually causing you to become more fertile. And certainly, <clears throat> the nation itself. So it, it had a spiritual connotation. <clears throat> the second thing they would do is they would practice intercourse. Okay? And it was believed that the gods uh, actually promoted that, and that would allow for fertility to take hold of the camp. So what were the Israelite men doing? They were going in, and they were eating this food, and they were having intercourse with the women. And as a result of that, they were going back to their camps. And kind of listen to me. I want you to get this. They're saying, it's okay for me to say, I follow God. I'm a Yahweh guy. But I did this over here, and I think it's okay because it was spiritual. You can't, you can't serve two masters. And, and so for, for the, the church in Pergamum, what's happening is they're being divided inside of themselves because they have people inside of that camp who are holding to the teachings of Balaam, who are saying it's okay for us to say, yes, we follow God, but to, to, to actually practice sexual immorality. It's okay for us to do that. And so what God is saying, Jesus is saying to them is, you, you cannot have it two ways. I have this against you. Okay? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a risk this morning. I'm going to put something on the table that I think is appropriate to put on the table, even though some of you may judge me for it. And I know that. I understand that. My intention in putting this on the table is not to judge anyone or to cause you to do anything other than just think about this. But I think we've all been up against this before. I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus Christ with my life. I want to live with this person outside of marriage. Did you just catch that? Is that pretty popular in our culture today? Let me ask you this. Is it very popular for someone like me to say, you, you can't really say, I'm going to follow Jesus, all his words, follow the word, or I'm going to do this. You, you, that doesn't work. That's outside of God's will. Is it popular for me to say that? No. Do most people look at me and say, you're, you're just some old-fashioned guy who's holding on to some kind of thing that doesn't make any sense in our, our world today? Of course. When we talk about homosexuality, and trust me when I tell you this, I know I have people in my family line that are homosexuals. I have, I, I'm, I'm not homophobic. I love many of them. But someone comes to me, and they say, I, I, I follow Jesus. Uh, his words are important to me. But, but I'm going to practice this. And I say to them, you, you can't do that. that that's Balaam. That's, uh, two, you can't, that's not, you can't, be, you can't serve two masters. Am I popular for saying that? Not really. People don't say, thumbs up to that, that's good. But that's who this church was. 
This church was called to be the voice of Jesus Christ, clear and simple. God has a word for you. His word is not meant to crush you or to cause you to just kind of, well, take all the fun out of life. His word is meant to do what? To set you free, to give you life, right? And so you're not saying, I'm putting this word here in front of you to condemn you and crush you and beat you up. You're saying, I'm putting this word in front of you because it will bring blessing to you if you live this way. If you live outside of it, guess what it's going to do? It's going to create problems for you. Guaranteed. There is a reason that in the secular world of psychology and sciences, people will tell you that your percentage of, of, of potentially getting divorced, if you choose to live together with someone prior to marriage, goes up huge. Right? There's a reason for it. It's not how God designed it. And so the Word of God is not meant to crush, but it's meant to give life. And so what he's saying is you, you've got people in your church that are holding on to the teachings of Balaam, and they're saying it's okay to do this, and this, and it's not going to work. It's going to split you, and so I have this against you. All right? Verse 15, he says, You also have some who hold to the teachings of the, kind of a weird word, word, word here, the Nicolaitans. Okay? Um, you go back and you look at the, at the theology of the Nicolaitans. Though we really don't have a complete understanding of their theological system, here's what we know about them. The Nicolaitans are people who would fit beautifully into Colorado. <laughs> yep, they would sell it. It's medicinal. It's good for you, right? <laughs> uh, why? Well, because the, the Nicolaitans were known for this idea that if God made something, it's good. And why should men have the right to call something that God made bad? Right? It's natural. It's normal. Okay? This, to me, sounds exactly like the Church of Satan. If I walk into the Church of Satan, I say, hey, is it okay for me to, to, to have uh, relations with five women? Yes, by all means. You think, is that of God? Absolutely. Why would you tell me that? Well, because it's normal. It's natural for people to want to have that. And so, you should be able to have that guiltless, free, because it's normal and natural. Only men came along, something called the church, and said it was bad. Okay. I'll tell you where this struck me the most is in a debate. It's the middle of a debate. Uh, it took place in... in, in in Texas, and they brought this guy in who created one of the first websites where you can sign up and go out to have an affair. Okay, and uh, pretty popular website, by the way. A um, lot of a lot of users. Um, unfortunately, a lot of church users of this website. So they brought this guy in who, who created this website and, uh, and he, he stands up in front of the crowd and his position is that affairs are one of the most healthy things you can do for your marriage because it's how we were made. We weren't made to be monogamous. We were made to have relationships with other people and so if you want to have a healthy marriage, you get on my website and you have affairs. Okay? He was debating a pastor. Uh, Ed Young Junior is uh, the son of a pastor out of Houston, and he's got a church in, in Dallas. Uh, and so Ed Young is kind of known in the Dallas area as the sex pastor. Okay, um, 
I think last year he got up on the roof of his church with his wife in a bed, and they they said we're going to have we're going to have this thing up here for like a week solid, you know. And um, they came and filmed him because he says God made it; it's good, but do it God's way. And so he's debating this guy, and I mean it goes back and forth and back and forth. Now I'm thinking this ought to be an easy debate to win, right? Everybody should know. Come on, people, this is affairs aren't good for America. Nope. You watch the debate, and guess what? If I were scoring it like a boxing match, I'm just being honest right now, I would say that the debate ended pretty much dead even. I would. This guy held his own. The, the pastor, Ed, he kept firing away, and here's what God's... But you know what? You watch the crowd. It was about dead even. After the two of them were done debating, they asked the audience for questions. And I'll tell you who won the debate. A little kid. People would come up to the mic and they'd say, look, I've had affairs and they've been good for my marriage. And you know, I mean, it'd be a husband and wife. They'd be like, oh yeah, this is really good for, good for us. Okay. Well, are you, we're Christians and we believe that. One little boy gets up and he says, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you about my parents' affair and their divorce and what it's done to me. And by the time he finished talking, the debate was over. He won it. You know why? Because you, you, you went from it being like a, an intellectual talk to seeing the pain and the hurt and the destruction of it all. What Satan revels in is I'm going to sell you something that, that on the outside looks good and it will unravel you and it will destroy you. And so the Nicolaitans <clears throat> were known for selling what looks good on the outside. It's natural. It's normal. Man and the church has no right to call it bad. And so if you can smoke it, puff it, do it, it's fine. It's of God. Go ahead and do it. All right. And so what, what God is saying, Jesus is saying to this church in Pergamum is, if you let this stuff stay in your midst, it'll destroy you. You can no longer function as my church. Okay. So his words become pointed in verse 16. Therefore, he says, repent. Turn around. One idiot. If not, I think this is significant, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a cross-reference verse here. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, remember how this letter started off. You always start off with a picture of Jesus Christ. In this case, in Pergamum, who was a Jesus Christ, and he had this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And we said that two-edged sword is one side of it the law, the other side of it the gospel. Okay, Don't forget that. He's saying, if you continue to allow this to, to infiltrate and be part of the church, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to you with my word, and it's going to cut. But my intention, that's the law, it's going to cut. But my intention is gospel to bring you back to me. Okay, Let me, let me just show you how, how critical this is. Um, I don't know if you've ever really paid a lot of attention to the book of Hebrews. But I'm going to have you flip over to, to verse number 6, in, in, or chapter number 6 in Hebrews, because it fits here. But one of the questions that I get asked all the time is, is it possible for a Christian to lose their faith? Can a Christian lose their faith? If you listen to preachers preach and theologians theologize, 
theologize, you're going to get different camps, right? You're going to get some camps that go, oh, no, 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 no. Christian can't lose their faith because once you have faith, the Holy Spirit is not to be, he seals that faith, he holds on to you, you can't lose it. Okay, so my Baptist friends would always be doing this. They'd be like, okay, look, look, here's it. Brother, Brother Biggs, here's how it works. Biggs, he said, Jesus comes along and, and he gives you his free free grace. He puts it in your hand. Now, now, once he puts it in your hand, the Holy Spirit has it. And, and, and guess what? No one can snatch you out of my hand. That's what Jesus says. Is I have them. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Jesus has you. Once you're saved, you always saved. Hallelujah, Brother Biggs. This is what I say. You're exactly right. Once I have that faith, it's in, it's in hand. No one can snatch it out of the hands. The, the devil can't get it out of my hand, right? Can tempt me, test me, can't get it out of my hand. Watch this. It's out of my hand. <laughs> hey, sit up front, people. Sit up front. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so you, you think about that. Now, what did I just do? I gave it away. Is it possible for a Christian to lose their faith? If you say no to that question, you've never read Hebrews chapter 6. You've just never read it. Just look at the words here. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay, here's what's going on in, in Hebrews. You're in Rome. You have all these Jewish people who've been converted. They become Christians. Persecution begins to set in. And the Christians start looking around and they go, you know what, this is bad for us, bad for our health to be Christians because they're killing Christians. We are practicing our Christianity in a synagogue. So we really look Jewish. We can hide. We can hide from the Romans. They're not going to know that we're Christians as long as we do something with Jesus. And so the entire book of Hebrews, you're in these, these former Jewish churches, now Christians, and here's what they do. They take Jesus, and instead of letting him stay as the, the Son of God who came and gave his life on the cross, they turn him into an angel. They demote him. Who's Jesus? He's an angel. Messenger of God. That's who Jesus is. By the way, Islam says the same thing. Not that he's an angel, but he's a messenger of God, right? That's who he is. They just demote him. And so guess what God does to the churches in Rome through the book of Hebrews? He comes to them with this two-edged sword. His intention is to speak the absolute truth to them in a way that they either hear it or they will lose their faith. Now, these are people who've been converted. They're Christians. Watch what he says to them. Verse 4. I think these, these are some really, really important words in the Bible. Verse 4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now just stop there and ask yourself the question, who are we talking about right there? Converted people. These are people who, what, they've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Okay? 
How do we know they're converted? Because you, you can't taste the goodness of the word of God or even, even affirm the coming of the age apart from the Holy Spirit converting you. It's the only way you'll know it. Okay. So he says it's impossible. Verse number six. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own home and holding them up to content. Here's, here's the whole message of the, the book of Hebrews. If you deny Jesus Christ, you take him and you subvert him. You fall away from the faith that you once had. Once you fall away from the faith, it's impossible to return. That's right there. To restore them again to repentance is impossible. There is one unforgivable sin in the Bible. What is it? It's the rejection of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. If I say I'm a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit inside of me, and, and, and I continue to live in a way that is outside of the will and word of God, what starts to happen, I get harder and harder and harder and harder. And there can come a point in time where I fall away. I reject the Spirit of God. I'm not going to listen to you, God. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to turn back. Here's what it says. If you get there, we can't restore you. It's the only unforgivable sin in the Bible. Is that scary to you? Let me tell you why it's probably scary to you. It's scary to me. I think every one of us in this room goes through some point in time in our life where you wonder, am I losing my faith? I, I can tell you that I have had as a pastor hundreds of quiet, in my office, confidential conversations with Christians who've walked in my door and have said, I'm, I, I have to talk to you. I think I'm losing my faith. Typically, when that person walks in the door, what I'm able to say to them is, it's a beautiful thing that you walk in here and tell me you think that you're losing your faith. Because that is a very clear sign that guess what? The Holy Spirit's working his butt off in your life. He's holding on to you. We'll have conversations. But I have to say to that person, is it possible for you to lose your faith? Yes, it is. But no one can take it from you. You'll have to give it away. When Jesus Christ says to this church in Pergamum, I will make war with them, with the sword of my mouth. Right? What he's saying, he's not saying I'm going to come just kill them all. He's saying I'm going to bring a very hard word to bear upon you if you don't repent. And my hard word for you is going to be, if you don't repent, you can lose your faith and you'll be outside of, of eternity. The purpose of that war, the purpose of that sword, that, those are hard words. The whole book of Hebrews is hard. Is again, not to, not, to, not to harm the people, but to say to them, you are in a very serious place right now. And repentance must take place. And if it can't take place, I, I have to come with this sword and I have to do war because Jesus' intention in Pergamum is not to crush the church, but to bring the church back to, back to himself. Right? So... That's the power of this, this um, statement that Jesus is making to them. 
I'll come soon and war against you if you don't return. And now he says, verse 17, let's close that. And he says, so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please listen to the Spirit of God. To the one who conquers. Okay? Don't misread that. Um, there's only one conqueror, and it's Jesus. He's the one who has conquered on our behalf. When, when the Bible says, to the one who conquers, he's really saying to the one who is under the blood of the one who has con conquered, Jesus Christ. To the one who has conquered. I will give, notice he gives us two things here. All of the things that Jesus gives at the end of these letters in Revelation have to do with eternity. All right? So there's two things he's given. He says, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Okay? Remember what manna was. I mean, we all know what manna was, right? Uh, Old, Old Testament, God's provision for his people while they were in the wilderness. The hidden manna um, refers to the provisions of God in eternity. Hidden because we, we can't see it today, right? But what we look at as we look at the book of Revelation is a picture of, of a eternity with God wherein we will be provided for daily all that we need, right? So it's, it's hidden to our natural minds. We can't see it. We can't comprehend it. It's why we make up a bunch of crap about heaven. And we do. We really do. Um, as we dig further and further into Revelation, I'll just show you that. But we make up a bunch of stuff that's not even true. But in, in heaven, you're, you're not in a permanent place, right? You're in an in-between place. And, and you're going to be on a new earth. And there will be in eternity a provision for you and so what he's saying is that's what I want you to think about is that time when I restore and make new the earth and you will have an eternity of provision that's the hidden manna our minds can't comprehend it not not one of us in this room can comprehend it and yet everything in the Bible points forward to it so he's saying I want to give you eternity with me and my eternal provision, the hidden manna. Second thing he says I'm going to give you is I'm going to give you a white stone. Okay. White stones were typically used in a court of law. When you rendered your judgment, a white stone meant not guilty. It's a beautiful picture of what is being said to the church. For the one who conquers, the one who comes back underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, who repents, you receive not guilty for eternity, right? And the third thing that he says is on that white stone, a new name is written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it, okay? A lot of fun stuff written in commentaries about this. Um, some people go and they're like, oh, you know what's going to happen is when you get in eternity, you get a new name. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be Michael Jackson. I just, I just, <laughs> moonwalk. So that's, I don't think it has, I really don't think it has to do with, with, with that, but some people kind of go, I get a new name when you get into eternity. Um, what I think it has to do with is, the, the, you see this again and again in scripture, you, you see points in these people's lives when they are converted and they receive literally a, a new name right? And so you have uh, Jacob, right? Who wrestles all night with the angel. And at the end of that wrestling match, what happens? The angel touches his hip, puts it out of place, and says, I will give you a new name. 
your new name is? Yisrael. Israel. Right? You have Simon, who, when he speaks these great words, you know, you're the Christ. Petros. You are now Petros. You're now the rock. Right? Gets a new name. And so I think it has to do with this idea that you receive at conversion and retain for eternity a new name. What is that new name? I am of Christ. I am of Jesus. And so in a very real sense, you, you, you hold that today. Who knows that you have that new name? I think this is kind of interesting. No one but the one who receives it. Can I tell if you have faith? I can see your fruits. I can see how you live. I can see what you do and you do not do. I can say, Jesus told me a long time ago that I will know them by their fruits. I can say, I don't think this person is a believer. I don't think this person is a Jesus follower. But do I know it? Nope. Who knows it? Jesus and the person who has received the white stone. Not guilty. Alone know it. So I believe that that signifies here that you received and will retain for eternity a new name. I am his. I belong to him. I am a new person, not the same as the old. And I think it's kind of cool that in a lot of cultures today, at the time of baptism, people do actually receive new names and um, actually begin to use those new names as, as their name uh, for the rest of their lives. All right, um, Pergamum, pretty, pretty important for our day and age because I do believe that we're living in a day and age where it is not popular to be you or me. But it is important to say the body cannot do what God called it to do if there's spiritual division in it. If we're saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, and in reality, we're allowing a life that is outside of that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. For